If you have your copy of the scriptures, please open to the uh, latter part of Matthew chapter 13, the beginning of Matthew chapter 14. If you don't have a copy of the scripture, there's a Bible right in front of you, Lord willing, in the pew. That's page 728 in your pew Bible. And somebody left a rubber band up here. That's trouble, because I'm going to be playing with it now. I better get rid of that. I don't need that anywhere. I don't need the temptation. I empty my pockets, and I, I don't need anything. I'm ADD enough that I don't, I don't need the distraction. Um, if you're joining us, we're kind of in the middle of a really long series, walking through the Gospel of Matthew. And as we come to our, our uh, portion today of the scriptures that we're going to be looking at, it's important for us to look backwards to see where we have come from. Um, in Matthew chapter 13, if you take a quick look and you've got a red letter edition, you get a copy of the scriptures that puts all of Jesus' words in red letters, and you look back at Matthew chapter 13, almost all of chapter 13 is red letters. Jesus has completed this massive sermon that is this mishmash of just random parables. He's telling parable after parable, eight parables. And through it, he is teaching many important truths about the kingdom, and he is further clarifying who he is. He's a wonder worker. He's, a, he's an amazing teacher. He um, espouses wisdom like a philosopher. Hmm, I wonder who this guy is. And he continues to reveal more to his disciples. And as he, <clears throat> as he reveals more, there is increasing polarization. Either people are more drawn to him or they are more pushed away from him the more that he reveals. And so as his identity Uh, in chapters 14 through 16, is increasingly clarified. The responses that we see that people make towards Jesus get more energized. The people that are for him are really for him. The people that are against him are really against him. Now, here's the thing that's really cool. You know how um, we talk about the opportunity that we have to study the scripture, and you'll, you'll read a passage that you've read all your life, and like you don't You don't recognize something that is there. I recognize something that in all my years of of reading through the scriptures, I've never seen. Jesus begins uh, Matthew chapter 13 by telling the parable of the four soils. And you you remember the story. The farmer goes out to sow, and he's casting the seed all over the place. Some of it falls on the hard ground, and it doesn't bear any fruit. Some of it gets into really shallow soil, and it sprouts up really quickly, but it dies because it doesn't have any root. There's other that gets among the thorny ground and it grows up, but the weeds around it choke it out and it dies. And then you have the good soil that bears this incredible uh, harvest, 30, 60, and 100 fold. Great little parable. Uh, The disciples and everybody else who hear it wonder, why is Jesus, who is the carpenter's son, talking about agriculture? Well, what he does in chapter 14 is he shows how what he has talked about in parables actually plays out in history. So here's, here's a preview of what we'll talk about. Jesus talks about going back to his hometown in Nazareth, and his own hometown people just completely reject him. He talks about um, Herod, who beheads John the Baptist for telling the truth. These guys are pictures of the hard soil. Jesus says, hey, I talked about the hard soil in a parable. Here's how it plays out in history. He talks about um, the soil where it sprouts up, and there's immediate life, but it's shallow, and it dies immediately. Then he goes to the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000, wherever he wants to follow Jesus as long as he's cooking. The minute he says, eat my flesh and drink my blood, nobody wants anything to do with Jesus. So they've got this shallow faith that sprouts up because it's exciting. Jesus just made a microwave meal without a microwave. But like when he says, follow me, they're not excited about it. It continues with Peter. Jesus comes walking across on the water and Peter says, if it's you, call me to you. Peter, Peter, come on. Peter gets out and he starts walking. 
And then what happens? He sees the waves. How do you not see the waves? You always see the waves. He turned his focus from Christ to the waves, and he begins to sink. Again, he's this, this shallow or this uh, thorny soil, you know. And then certainly you have um, <clears throat> the story of Jesus traveling to Gennesaret on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And it says whenever Jesus gets there, they recognize who Jesus is, and they go into all the towns and the villages surrounding, and they tell everybody, drop what you're doing, you need to come, Jesus is here. It's the good soil. And then, of course, you've got the thorny soil that seems to grow a lot longer than the shallow soil, and then eventually gets choked out by the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches. I think that's Judas, who appears to be a disciple, but at the very end, he's choked out for 30 pieces of silver, and he betrays his Lord. So in chapter 14, (coughs) we see Jesus reiterating the very thing that he talked about in parabolic form. And now he says, hey, listen, you want to see the soils in action? Pay attention to Nazareth. Pay attention to Herod. Pay attention to the crowd of 5,000. Pay attention to Peter. But really pay attention to Gennesaret. That was the good soil that bore fruit. And so this morning we look at the stories of the rejection of Nazareth and the, the depravity of Herod. And what we see are pictures of hard soil, unbelief, and human depravity. The storyline is pretty straightforward. Uh, None of the people in the passages we talk about this morning believe in Jesus. And like the people of Nazareth, one of the things that we face today is that there are many people today who reject Jesus. Now, they may not reject him for good reasons. They may reject him because of what their grandma told them that wasn't necessarily biblical. You know, a little more of the kind of urban legend that surrounds them. But people reject Jesus today. And so let's look at... um, beginning in Matthew 13, verse 54, and let's see what the scriptures say. It says that Jesus went to his hometown, and he began to teach them in their synagogue so that they were astonished. Uh, Pretty straightforward. Jesus does what Jesus does. He teaches, and he goes to his hometown. We don't know how long it has been since he's been in Nazareth, but you'll remember a little bit of the um, biography of Jesus he was born in. Bethlehem, the city of David, because of the census. He's in Bethlehem uh, after he is born for a short while, and then Joseph is warned in a dream that King Herod the Great is going to make an attempt on the child's life, and so they get up and they flee to Egypt. Most scholars believe that Jesus was a refugee for about two years. Uh, He crossed the border. This was before they built the fence, and um, he lived in Egypt for two years. Uh, After his uh, period of exodus, he comes out of Egypt, and he settles in the town of Nazareth, So Nazareth is the place where Jesus grows up um, from probably two or three years old until um, arguably he's 30. He is uh, a product of Nazareth. And so he goes to his own hometown, and you would think that there's a ticker tape parade, that the the fair-haired boy, you know, the varsity letter winner, captain of the team is back, Jesus, son of God, miracle worker. And that's not exactly what happens. The language is a little confusing because we hear that he gets there and he goes to the synagogue and he teaches and they were astonished. The problem is this astonishment is not a good thing. Now, astonished sounds good, but like, have you ever been like astonished at one of the things your kids has done? That's astonished and it's not always a good thing. You're like, you stood on a stool and then balanced on a, uh, on a, uh, a spoon on top of a footstool to get to the cookie jar? No, 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 you don't do that. You know, that's astonishment. And so astonishment can be good or bad, and the context really determines what this astonishment means. So 
There's something going on with Jesus that has attracted their attention. Listen to how they process it. Uh, The introduction to his teaching is followed by five kind of interrogative questions that continue in verses 54 through 56. He went to his hometown. He began to teach them in their synagogue so that they were astonished. And they said, how did this wisdom and these miracles come to him? Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother called Mary and his brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? They knew this guy well, by the way. I mean, they're naming off his whole family tree. And his sisters, aren't they all with us? So where does he get all these things? And they were offended by him. The word offended in Greek is the word scandalon. He was a scandal. He thinks he's better than us. You remember them saying, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Nazareth was not the intellectual capital, the Holy Lands. It was a backwoods thing, and Jesus comes teaching all of these um, deep truths. He's espousing all of this wisdom. He's performing miracles, and they're like, why aren't you like carpentering stuff? Aren't you the carpenter's son? They ask these five questions. Where do the miracles come from? Isn't he this son? Isn't this his mother? Aren't these his brothers and his sisters? So where did he get all these things? Mary, did you secretly send him to Sabbath school that we didn't know about? How did he learn these things? He's too big for his own britches. But they ask really good questions, don't they? Where did he get this wisdom? And how does he have the ability to perform these miracles? Isn't that the question of all questions? If we could confront everyone with the claims of Jesus and have them seriously investigate it, man, that's a great question. What is going on with Jesus? Only, only the most educated fools uh, will argue that Jesus never literally existed. There's no uh, objectively thinking human being on the face of the planet that would argue against the fact that Jesus was a historical person. They may argue the details about who he is, but Jesus existed. And so what do we do with the facts that we know about Jesus? What do we do with the eyewitness accounts that we find in the New Testament? Well, they ask really good questions, but they don't really look for really good answers. Because what they already know has precluded what they will ever discover. They've already formed their conclusions. They ask about the origin of his wisdom and his miracles, but they don't ever get to the right answers. Because they look at him as this show-off, and they go, huh, Jesus, yeah, why didn't he follow his dad to carpentry? Itinerant preacher and wisdom spouter? How in the world is he going to provide for Mary? That doesn't seem like a very, you know, stable profession. Man, how reckless for someone who's supposed to be a responsible firstborn. Aren't firstborns supposed to be responsible and take care of the family? Look at what Jesus is doing. What a shame. What a sham. And the truth is that they are beliefs in a perverse way, led to their unbelief. Aren't those his brother and sisters? Isn't Joseph? Isn't Mary? What they believed ultimately led to their unbelief. You see, it's very inaccurate, I think, for us as Christians to call people unbelievers. You know, we we refer to that as non-churchgoers. They're unbelievers. That's not true. They do believe something. I mean, these people at Nazareth, in one sense, yes, they are unbelievers or non-believers, but they do believe something, and that's part of the problem. What I, what I mean is this. What they, what they knew, or what they thought they knew about Jesus' humanity, led them to deny him worship as the Son of God. Isn't this Mary's son? Isn't this 
Joseph's boy. And the thing that's really uh, tragic about this is the point where they can get their questions answered most satisfactorily is right in their own hometown. Isn't he Joseph's boy? Well, sort of. Yes, but Mary's son? Well, let me tell you the story about my pregnancy. They could have gotten easy answers to this, but what their knowledge already consisted of, their knowledge of Jesus, led to their disbelieving in Jesus. Hey, you know what? We know his brothers and his sisters. Jury's out. Jury's done. Conclusion, he's got to be a sham. Calling himself the son of God, doing these miracles, teaching these teachings. And that reminds us of something that I don't know would have been helpful in this particular situation. But I think it's, it's befitting for us. <clears throat> Is it effective evangelism for us? It requires us not only to know the gospel, but also to understand what other people believe. Sometimes what we have to undo is bad, bad teaching and fuzzy thinking. Uh, just a couple weeks ago, I had the chance to sit down for breakfast with a young man who um, <clears throat> theoretically understood all the facts of the gospel, but the moral implication of the gospel was very difficult for him. And so, I, you know, as someone who is not yet a believer in Jesus, I'll clean up the language. But basically he said, um, I really, well, I want my sins forgiven and I want to go to heaven when I die but I don't feel like Jesus has any right to tell me what I do in the privacy of my own bedroom with my girlfriend. He said, so if I have to choose between Jesus or free expression of romance, I know what I'm going to choose. And so that was a very clarifying remark for me to hear because it let me know, all right, he's not arguing that Jesus is the Son of God. He's just arguing, does he have authority to tell me what to do? So we go to the passage that says that once you become a Christian, you are bought with a price. Your body is no longer yours. It belongs to God. Therefore, you are to glorify God in your body. And so at this point now, he's really chewing on some stuff because he wants to become a Christian. He just doesn't understand. He's wrestling with this whole issue. All right, if I buy into this, then Jesus really needs to tell me what I get to do and what I don't get to do. I don't get to be the king of my life anymore. Jesus gets to be the king of my life. There are people who struggle with all kinds of things. We are so one-size-fits-all that we, we, we mark people off as, as unbelievers when perhaps if we were a little more sensitive to understanding what, where their point of contention was, that we might actually win them to Christ. I had the opportunity this week to talk with somebody who had some questions about the resurrection. And it was after, the, you know, Jesus was a man, but then he died. Was it his spirit that was resurrected? No, no, no. It was a bodily resurrection. And that bodily resurrection is what gives us hope for our bodily resurrection. You remember when Jesus rose, Thomas said, I don't believe it. Y'all saw a ghost. And then Jesus doesn't help because he like walks through the wall. I, I don't know how you do that with a physical body. He's like, Woo! Yeah, he would have freaked everybody out. You know, if he was me, he would have gone, boo, you know, and done something like that. But he shows up and he says, Thomas, come here. Put your hands, put your fingers in my hand. He's not a ghost. He's a physical body. He eats bread. He eats fish. John 21, uh, the disciples are out fishing. And he says, hey, throw your nuts on the other side. They catch fish. Hey, it's the Lord. And they come and Jesus has already prepared a little campfire. And he's cooking fish and he's baking bread for them. And he's eating with them. Not things that a spiritual body would do. And so I had the opportunity to sit down with somebody and, and help them think through a little more clearly what the Bible teaches about bodily resurrection. Because you know what? You don't have a gospel if you don't have a bodily resurrection. 
There's no gospel with no resurrection. And it can't be some funky, well, his body died, but his spirit rose up to, to God again. No, that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches bodily resurrection. And so one of the things that's important is it not, it's not enough. Let me be very clear. You need to have in your armory of weapons to use in spiritual warfare every Bible verse, every gospel plan you can think of. But you know what? Just throwing Bible verses at people is not enough. It's like with your kids. Sometimes to really get their attention, you got, you got to get down their level, and you got to speak in their language, and you got to ask them questions to figure out what the problem is. And it's the same when we talk with people who are not yet believers. We've got to find out what their objection is so that we can apply the gospel more specifically to their objection. And so for us, man, it is important that we know the gospel. But it's important that we're sensitive enough to listen to what the stumbling blocks are for other people. Because if we can remove the stumbling block, perhaps then they will believe. <clears throat> Here's the truth that I think is really painful. No matter how well prepared you are, no matter how many answers you can answer, how many questions you can answer, you can, you can knock down every obstacle and every stumbling block in the way and people will still choose to not believe. Because with uh, the, the first gentleman that I talked about that struggled with the authority issue, listen, I had answered every objection that he had. The issue was an issue of the will. Was he willing to submit his will to the kingship of Christ? Or did he want to keep that crown on his own head? And ultimately, the issue is not a theoretical or an intellectual one. You throw those out, and I can, I, I can take those down. The issue ultimately becomes an issue of the will. Are you willing to, to submit to him as king. And so you can be really gunned up and ready to go answering questions, and you can do it in the, in the right spirit, with the right words, and it still may result in people rejecting Jesus. It's interesting, the people of Nazareth don't deny that Jesus spoke with great wisdom or that he performed miracles. They had evidence right in front of them, and despite what they saw in what they heard, they said, you know what? He cannot be who he claims to be because we know his human family. It's interesting to watch the reaction. They go in verse 54 from being astonished to verse 57 being offended. And Jesus finishes out this passage by saying, uh, at the end of verse 57, Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many miracles there because of their unbelief. They move from astonishment to offense to not believing in him. And so Jesus lines himself with the Old Testament prophets. He goes, you know what? The Old Testament prophets, they revealed God. They taught the way of truth. They pointed the way, and yet they were universally rejected. Many of them were killed or just written off as kind of wild, crazy men, and they were consistently rejected. And the Bible says that Jesus didn't do many miracles there because of the people's unbelief. Now, all of you in Ed LaRock's Sunday school class, you can use that and um, chew on that for a little bit. Uh, discussion that you guys are having in Sunday school right now. Um, but the truth is that the Holy Spirit doesn't force himself upon an unwilling audience. <clears throat> Here's the thing that's really crazy, friends. If you are not filled with the Spirit right now, it's because you don't want to be. It's plain and simple. You know, uh, if Valentine's was not a happy holiday for you, it's because ultimately you chose for it not to be. How can you not, how can you not, 
work the romance up for one day, men, women, you know, the, the culture kind of sets it up for an easy win for you. Buy a card, get some flowers, get some chocolate. And ultimately, you know, if you're not where you want to be with Christ, it's because you don't really want to be there. The Holy Spirit doesn't force himself. He comes upon willing people. Interestingly, this is the last time in Matthew's gospel that we ever see Jesus in the synagogue. He goes to his own hometown. His hometown folks reject him, and he moves away. So speaking of the Old Testament prophets that Jesus just mentioned, we now jump into chapter 14, and we witness the demise of the very last of that breed. John the Baptist is the very last in the line of Old Testament prophets. He's in that time between the times. He is... God has been silent for hundreds of years. John the Baptist appears. And people go, hey, it's Elijah, you know. And he's about to get killed by King Herod for taking a moral stand. In the first story, Jesus at Nazareth, we see that Jesus' natural family was a stumbling block to people's beliefs. Since then, his spiritual family has almost continually been a stumbling block and even universally hated. It's really strange because if we live the way God wants us to live, uh, we're we're kind of caricatured as goody-two-shoes and Puritans and all kinds of words that are used to describe us in an unappealing light. But yet, if we screw up and it gets known, then we're a bunch of hypocrites. So you're darned if you do darned. You live right, you're going to be maligned. You live wrong, and people go, ha, ha, I gotcha. Jesus' spiritual family is sometimes a stumbling block to people's belief, too. And we're going to see something in the story of John the Baptist that is important, because we see this hatred towards Jesus' family, John the Baptist being in in Jesus' spiritual family. And we see that hatred very evident in, in Herod's depravity, witnessed in his treatment of John. This is an important topic, because when we talk about grace, we love to talk about grace. Grace is awesome. Grace makes me smile. Grace makes me happy. You know, grace is good. And the truth is, I think sometimes when we talk about grace in in one note, there's not the harmony of the discordant note that helps it to stand in contrast. Um, This kind of just popped into my mind uh, this week in a conversation with a friend. Uh, was looking at one of those little cling window cling advertisements for a restaurant. And it was a black background with bright white lettering. And I just went, huh, what would happen to that advertisement if it was a black background with black lettering? You wouldn't have a message to, to say. You wouldn't be able to see it. Oh, well, you know, this is a darker shade of dark and this is a lighter shade of... No, you, you don't do it. If you want your message to stand out... You choose a dark background in a light lettering because you want it to, you want it to, what's the word you use, pop? You want it to pop. You want it to stand out. You want it to be obvious. And so you, you want it to be distinct from what sets it in contrast to what's behind it. And the truth is, if we want to talk about grace, <clears throat> we want to be all about that grace, all about that grace. I'm sorry. I'm on drugs. Um, <laughs> you've got to talk about depravity. Because you know what? <laughs> God's grace doesn't make any sense if we don't need to be saved from something. I mean, Christ's death on the cross is foolishness. I mean, it is anyways to an unbelieving world. 
But why in the world did he need to die if our depravity was just like a sickness? You know how the Bible talks about our depravity? It says you're dead. Like you're not, you're not like floundering in the sea of humanity and Jesus comes by and tosses you a life ring. No, you're like fish food at the bottom of the ocean. Your body's decomposed. And like, like um, Ezekiel in the Valley of Dry Bones, he says, prophesy to the bones. Can these bones live? He goes, I don't think so. But God takes the bones and he joins the bones together and then there's sinew and tendons and muscles and skin and vessels and then there's a whole army standing up. That's what God does for people who believe in Christ. He takes dead people and he makes them alive in Christ. And so we don't like to talk about depravity because we, when we think of depravity, we think of Osama bin Laden. We think of ISIS in every video that they post on YouTube. We think of Adolf Hitler. And while those certainly may be exemplars of depravity gone like extreme, we believe that our depravity is total as well. That means that that depravity is hidden in our own hearts and that every fiber of our being, our mind, our will, our emotions, our desires, is affected by sin. Have you ever said anything that you know you shouldn't say? Has there ever been a word that's come out of your mouth that you knew is not going to be pleasing to Jesus? Have you ever thought something that you know you shouldn't think and you think you're saved because nobody knows your thought life? Have you ever wanted something that you know you shouldn't want? Man, you know, a Christian man shouldn't want those kind of things. Shouldn't have those kind of thoughts. Why does that happen? Even for redeemed humanity, why do we still struggle with that? Because our depravity, the root to that tree, extends down really deep. And for those of us that are redeemed, we actually have God's spirit to combat that kind of depravity, but we still see it. And we see this depravity unchecked because Herod, who is king, has no filter on his depravity. He has no... Holy Spirit to hold back his sin nature. And so listen to what God's word says. <clears throat> Matthew 14, 1 through 12. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the report about Jesus. This is John the Baptist, he told his servants. He has been raised from the dead, and that's why supernatural powers are at work in him. For Herod had arrested John, chained him, and put him in prison on account of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Since John had been telling him, it's not lawful for you to have her. Though he wanted to kill him, he feared the crowd since they regarded him as a prophet. But when Herod's birthday celebration came, Herodias' daughter danced before them and she pleased Herod. So he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might, she might ask. And prompted by her mother, she answered, give me John the Baptist's head here on a platter. Although the king regretted it, he commanded that it be granted because of his oath and because of his guests. So he sent orders and had John beheaded in the prison. His head was brought on a platter and given to the girl who carried it to her mother. Then his disciples came, removed the corpse, buried it, and went and reported to Jesus. This Herod family is very interesting because the Herod in this story, his father almost killed Jesus when he was two years old. But now that Herod the Great is dead, his kingdom is divided between his two sons, Archelaus, Herod Antipas, and Philip II. And we can see that Herod Antipas and Philip II have a strained relationship because Herod Antipas has stolen Philip II's wife. He is married to his sister-in-law, who also happens to be his niece, which is proof that people from uh, the Holy Lands emigrated to West Virginia. And so... That explains a whole lot. <laughs> That's just gross. His sister-in-law and his niece. And John the Baptist takes a moral stand and says, it's wrong for you 
to do this. And what happens is when Herod hears the story of Jesus' healing ministry, there's this mixture of kind of theology and superstition. He goes, oh my goodness, John the Baptist is back from the dead. And it, it, it ushers us into a flashback into a twisted soap opera where we hear of John's faithful ministry and Herod's incredible depravity. We actually have a parallel account that spells things out a little more explicitly in Mark chapter 6, <clears throat> verses 17 through 20. It'll sound remarkably similar, but listen to the differences. Uh, for Herod himself had given orders to arrest John and to chain him in prison on account of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. John had been telling Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias held a grudge against him and wanted to kill him, but she could not. Because Herod was in awe of John and was protecting him, knowing he was a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard him, he would be very disturbed, yet he would hear him gladly. Do you hear the conflict in Herod's own heart? Herodias hated him. Herod admired him, protected him because he was a righteous man. Hated to hear him preach, but loved it at the same time. Said that his preaching disturbed him, yet he would hear him gladly. What an interesting thing. And just like the case with the government officials surrounding Jesus' death, Herod was a weak leader who allowed himself to be manipulated and contributed to the murder of an innocent man. Three times Pilate said that he finds no guilt in Jesus, washes his hands from his blood, and and, 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 and con ends up compromising to the crowd to give them Jesus when Barsabbas was the clear choice for the person to be executed. And in the same way, Herod feared John and the crowd, but he allowed his love interest to control his decision-making. It's interesting that John is compared to um, Elijah in a variety of ways, but I think this is the most interesting contrast. Both were willing to confront sinful leaders. Elijah stood face-to-face -face with Ahab and Jezebel, and John the Baptist went toe-to-toe -to -toe with Herod and Herodias. And what John the Baptist found out is that speaking the truth is costly. He was killed over it. Church history reports that when um, uh, the daughter brought the head on the platter, that Herodias' spite for John the Baptist was so great that she put a nail through his tongue for speaking against her. Wanted to deface his body after he was dead. <clears throat> speaking the truth is costly. He lost his life, and it's odd that we're on this topic on Valentine's Day. John the Baptist lost his life for defending the sanctity of marriage. It's wrong, Herod, what you're doing. You shouldn't be doing it. It doesn't accord with what God's Word says. We don't have any uh, indication that what the, the way John said it was spiteful, hateful. Uh, listen, John didn't pull any punches. He told the truth, called it as he saw it. He got killed because of it. And friends, that reminds us that we have to speak up in a morally decadent age. We, have a, we, we live in a world that doesn't want any, they don't want any bars on any freedom. We want to be able to do exactly what we want. But friends, as we speak truth in a morally decadent age, we, we have to remember to mix uh, truth with grace. We don't water truth down, but we seek to do it in a gracious way. Because telling people that they're doing something wrong is always hard to hear. And so we need to be gracious in the way that we say this. <clears throat> I'm fearful for our country and for the direction that we're heading. In our marriage conference Friday night, they start off the marriage conference with all these cute little videos of school children. 
asking them if they want to get married when they get older. And it's really cute. You know, the girls are like, no, boys have cooties. Don't want anything to do with them. Maybe later, you know, and the little boy talking about, yeah, I can't wait to find that special woman. And we're going to have lots of kids. We're like, just get a little wiser. You'll, you'll, that'll, you'll blow that candle out quick. Um, <clears throat> you know, there's just all this cute stuff talking about. And the video is probably five or six years old. And I wonder, I really do wonder this, and I don't say this as a chicken little, that if we went to a public school today, would a majority of boys say that they're going to marry girls when they grow up? I don't know that that's the case anymore. Because we have, we have turned our culture into such a, there's no distinction between male and female anymore. In the state of California now, uh, in public schools, any new school that's constructed will have unisex bathrooms. Because to make any kind of distinction based on gender is not admissible. We have to blend it all together so that everything's equal. And so we call things marriage that God never intended to be marriage, but if we don't, if we get God out of the equation, then maybe we can do what we want. And there's consequences to that. About a year and a half ago as a church, we, we put a policy in place that defined, for all intents and purposes, everything that we believed about marriage and sexuality. You know, it's not that we have an ax to grind against any um, particular special interest group, because we believe that there's a lot of Christians that violate what we believe about sexuality. Sexual interests are not to be uh, um, pursued outside of the marital relationship, not through the internet, not with another person. And so we want to be as serious about the sanctity of sexuality within marriage as much as we do about the definition of marriage. We had this discussion about a year and a half ago. Chris, you were chairman of Deacons, and, and we had the question, do we really need to do this? You know, maybe in 10 years we need to do this. Do we need to do this now? And within six months, Charlotte had, had passed an ordinance that was unrestricted even to churches in their hiring policies. That churches, when they were hiring a staff member, could not, could not stick to their faith statement and exclude someone who uh, was practicing marriage or sexuality out of our faith statement. We would be uh, prejudicial to not hire someone based upon their practice. Guys, it's here. It's now. And there's going uh, to be a question called for each of us whether we're willing to lose our head for the cause of Christ. And listen, martyrdom's not our goal. It's not. We have to be faithful to Christ. And when popular polls show how out of touch the contemporary church is with morals and ethics, this shouldn't make us waver. It should remind us of the terrible truth that broad is the way and wide is the path that leads to destruction. But narrow is the way that leads to life, and there are few that find it. We have to be resolute in our following of Christ. <clears throat> there may not be many U.S. Christians that really seriously face beheading unless you go to Syria, you know. There are not many Christians that are going to face death for their faith. But intimidation, harassment, and caricature will continue to increase. You'll be made fun of as a knuckle-dragging Neanderthal if you believe in traditional family values. You'll be harassed and passed over for promotion. You'll be intimidated. To, in a culture of extreme tolerance, we'll be the only voice that's not allowed. Because we're not cool, or at least not cool enough. And we dare to call sin, sin, not based upon our own opinions, but upon the sure and certain word of God. So admittedly, this is a pretty tough passage. You know, Jesus' hometown <laughs> rejects him. John the Baptist gets beheaded. Go and do likewise, amen, you're dismissed. You know, you go, wow, where's the hope in this? <clears throat> there is hope. There is hope. And, and I, I find a hint of the gospel in John's beheading. Because just as John was faithful to the point of death, and it led to him losing his head for uh, taking a moral stand, what do we know will happen to Jesus? John the Baptist's beheading is a foreshadowing of the crucifixion of Christ. Oddly, 
Herod, who um, puts his seal of approval on the beheading of John, Jesus appears before him. And he has the chance to weigh in on what's going on with Jesus. And he cops out again. In a weird twist of irony, the people of Nazareth couldn't believe in Jesus because he was too human. But yet Herod and his cronies, they kill John the Baptist because they are too human. Their depravity is just right there. But for us who, knew the, who know the rest of the story, Nazareth, rejection, uh, Herodian murders, we know that beyond the scope of what happens on the human scene, the stage of, of humanity's action, that God is in action behind the scenes, sending his man where we had been disobedient to be obedient perfectly to the Father, who came to live a sinless life, to obey God perfectly, to die an atoning death so that all who believe in his name might have their sins forgiven and might be made alive in Christ. And so while we see this and we go, oh no, the world's going to hate us, it's going to be so difficult. No, friends, it is through his death that we have victory. It is through his spirit that we have the power to stand with grace and truth for the things that we believe, not just because we're a special interest group, because we want to live according to the word of God. And that should give us hope in the midst of dark times. Let's pray. Lord, we admit how much we need your grace to motivate us. It is easy when we talk about things that are sensitive for our speech to be unbecoming of followers of Christ. God, we are not to be hateful. God, I pray that you forgive us where we are. Um, God, we are sinners just like the rest of the world. You and your grace have enabled our eyes to see and our mouths to taste the truth of who you are. And we have been changed. We have been redeemed. We have your spirit within us. God, help us not to uh, uh, make light of uh, the indwelling of your spirit. It is easy for us to look at the rejection in Jesus' hometown and go, those fools! And yet, God, we resist your spirit in all kinds of ways. We are prompted to obey in ways that we don't. We, are, um, we hear your still, small voice asking us to make sacrifices, and we refuse. God, we resist you too. And it's even more of a tragedy for your people to resist you than it is for an unbeliever. So God, I pray that as we um, sometimes become painfully aware of the sin uh, around us in our culture, help us to understand that that depravity is hidden in the depths and the recesses of our own heart. And but for the grace of God there, we would go as well. So God, we thank you for the grace that you give us in Christ. We thank you for the new life that you give us. We pray that you help us to recommit our lives uh, a new and afresh to you right now, to live with you as our king, and to uh, boldly stand upon your gospel for the hope of winning people that um, don't see things the way that we see them right now. We pray that your spirit will work powerfully in our lives and in our, in our communities. In Jesus' name we pray.